From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, with voting in the New Hampshire primary set to start in less than 24 hours, polls show Donald Trump widening his lead in a reformed contest. We don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. And so with Ron DeSantis now dropping out, it's a race between Trump and Nikki Haley. Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy are joining us live from the Granite State. I'm Patricia Murphy. Greg and I were at a Nikki Haley event in Seabrook when voters learned that DeSantis had dropped out. Haley told reporters she's always hoped for a two-candidate matchup with Trump and declared, may the best woman win. I'm Greg Bluestein. Donald Trump is so confident he'll win New Hampshire, he held a rally here featuring endorsements from Republican leaders from South Carolina, the next big state in the primary contest. I'm Tia Mitchell. We'll discuss the latest on the Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade controversy. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, where we aim to set the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. I'm Bill Nygut in the Atlanta studios. Tia Mitchell is in Washington. Tia, like me, you're going to watch the results of tomorrow's primary from a distance in Washington. Yes, and I'll be um, doing a lot of political analysis on TV, so I'm just looking forward to seeing what Greg and Patricia Share with us from being on the ground. Well, that's exactly what I'd like to do next is introduce him. Greg Bluestein right now joins us from Salem, New Hampshire, which I think, Greg, is what, about a 25, 30-minute drive south of Manchester, the kind of the heart of the primaries, a little less? Yep. You got everything seems like it's 25 minutes away from <laughs> Manchester in the state. And Patricia, you're out. You've been out already this morning, I believe. Uh, covering uh, one of the few events going on this uh, during the day today. Yes, I am in uh, Manchester at a Dunkin' Donuts, obviously, <laughs> which is what you do <laughs> when you're in New England. And I um, met up with some volunteers for Joe Biden. He is not on the New Hampshire primary ballot tomorrow, but they're doing everything they can to have voters write his name in so that he can score a victory on the same night that uh, Donald Trump is expected to win here in New Hampshire as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about the dynamics of Biden and the reason he's not on the ballot a little bit later in the show. But let's start by playing first a soundbite of the big news that we learned late yesterday when Ron DeSantis decided it was time to get out of the GOP race. Let's listen. I can't ask our supporters to volunteer their time and donate their resources if we don't have a clear path to victory. Accordingly, I am today suspending my campaign. It's clear to me that a majority of Republican primary voters want to give Donald Trump another chance. He has my endorsement because we can't go back to the old Republican guard of yesteryear, a repackage formed of warmed over corporatism that Nikki Haley represents. 
Well, there's a lot we can unpack there. Greg, I understand you and Patricia were with Nikki Haley in an event when she got the news that DeSantis had dropped out. Is that right? We were in a lobster shack in Seabrook, New Hampshire, right near the Massachusetts state line when that news came out. And, uh, you know, it was packed with supporters and also just people having having lunch. Uh, and and to say the, that Nikki Haley was enthusiastic is an understatement because this is this gives her the head to head matchup she's always wanted. Now, will it actually help her at the ballot box? You know, most of DeSantis' supporters could end up leaning uh, towards Trump instead of Nikki Haley. Uh, you know, certainly we just heard DeSantis give his endorsement, his unequivocal endorsement to Donald Trump. Um, but, you know, th- that aside, Nikki Haley now has that one on one matchup that she's always wanted. So this is a, a clear choice for voters tonight or tomorrow night. Yeah. And the timing was very helpful for Nikki Haley. It was much more helpful for her that DeSantis dropped out two days before the New Hampshire primary instead of two days after the New Hampshire primary. Now, it of course, it also increases expectations for her immensely because this is now a true two-person race, which is what she has tried to create an impression of all along, but it has actually come to pass. And how will Haley do in a state that is just tailor-made for her politics, independent and Democrats can uh, participate in the primary tomorrow. They can cross over. And because there's not a competitive Democratic primary, they'll have the freedom to really do that. If she doesn't perform extremely well here with this electorate, I think she's going to be she's going to have major, major trouble going into South Carolina and staying in the race much longer. So, Greg and Patricia, I am curious, have you talked to any former Ron DeSantis supporters or how do you feel that this news that, you know, it's to me, I find it weird. Okay. Let me go on my tangent first. Then I'll ask my question. (laughs) I find it weird. Ron DeSantis had said all along, he was not competing in new, you know, recently had not been competing in New Hampshire. He was putting all his eggs in the back basket for South Carolina, which is in a couple of weeks. So, My first question is, have you guys talked to any Ron DeSantis supporters? But I also want to get your analysis of like, what do you think changed? Because he went from, I don't care. I know I'm going to lose in New Hampshire. I don't care because I'm competing in South Carolina to two days before the New Hampshire primary. I don't have a path to victory. So Donald Trump had a major event in New Hampshire two days ago where he rolled out just about every major South Carolina official, the governor, and most importantly, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott. And um, it became very clear that nobody, not Nikki Haley and not Ron DeSantis, nobody was going to come up with a big surprise supporter, no big surprise bucket of votes in South Carolina. And I think that event, coupled with his own donors saying, uh, I we don't know how much longer we're going to be in this thing with you. He was increasingly, uh, it was clear he was not going to do well in South Carolina either. So how many more times can you come in second, second, third, and continue to ask people for money? They have spent a ton of money on this campaign, more than $100 million. And to have this little to show for it after competing, especially in Iowa, he went to all 99 counties. He spent a ton of time out there and to not have a better showing out there to practically tie with Nikki Haley, who spent very little time and money out there, uh, showed that even when you get all the Ron DeSantis you can handle, it's not going to win uh, the conservative base the way you need to. 
Exactly. And I mean, before Ron DeSantis put all his eggs in the South Carolina basket, he put all his eggs in the Iowa basket, right? And ended up losing by 30 points. Um, and so after all that tremendous amount of resources and, and money spent, and look, you know, you just asked whether or not there was any, where DeSantis supporters in here in New Hampshire are leaning. And he was only polling at 6% in, in most polls. So low single digits, medium single digits here in New Hampshire. His event that he was supposed to have uh, here in Manchester Sunday was ended up becoming sort of a, a wake for his supporters of his campaign. Just a handful showed up to eat chicken fingers and drink some beer. Um, but it was he did not really have too much foundation here. But as Patricia mentioned, you know, my first introduction to this year's New Hampshire primary was when I got here Saturday and I saw a slate of familiar South Carolina faces on that stage with Donald Trump. And it was a show of force and a signal to DeSantis, but more importantly, a signal to Nikki Haley that she's in a battle against the former president here, but also in her own backyard where she's also trailing in the polls. And as we've mentioned, if the electorate here is kind of tailor made for her and she's still trailing uh, Donald Trump, then imagine in South Carolina, of course, it's her home state, but also that's an electorate that's far more conservative, more evangelical than the Republican base here in New Hampshire. Um, uh, Tia, I would add to that uh, the fact that uh, DeSantis's philosophy clearly at this moment is live to fight another day. Uh, he, he obviously was going to get shellacked by both Trump and uh, Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. The polls in South Carolina show Trump with a big lead. We can talk about that uh, during the show today. Um, but why not if you're Ron DeSantis withdraw? as gracefully as possible now and recognize you're still a young enough guy that uh, you can come back in the next presidential election cycle without the humiliation of losing not just Iowa, but New Hampshire, South Carolina, and so on down the line. I was going to say along those same lines, I wonder what, what what do you guys think Nikki Haley's long game is? Because yeah, she's looking like she's it's a one on one race that she wanted, but it's a one on one race that looks like it's not really winnable. There's not a single poll that has shown her ahead of Trump. Um, is she waiting to see maybe after New Hampshire that gives her mo- more momentum because it's not looking good in South Carolina? But what's her long game? So she's certainly said that she's going to stay in it through South Carolina. I think it would be very hard for her to drop out after New Hampshire, but before going to South Carolina, before being in front of her own voters in her own state where she and her family live. So it feels like she's going to South Carolina, but the conversation up here has been, well, what happens to DeSantis's voters? Are those mostly Trump, mostly Haley? Um, I would say it, it's a split. Um, I talked to a number of DeSantis voters who um uh, don't love Trump, uh, but didn't he wasn't Trump enough. He didn't close the border fast enough. He didn't uh, open up fast enough after COVID. That's like one chunk of voters. The other chunk were never Trumpers. And I think they would go over to Haley. But it also all feels a little bit irrelevant because unlike Iowa, where it felt like DeSantis was not already said and done, it kind of felt like there was a bit of a contest in New Hampshire, I mean, there's nothing happening today. <laughs> it's the day before primary day. Um, Donald Trump is in a New York courtroom. He has an event at 9 o'clock p.m. Uh, Nikki Haley has a couple of public events, but she's not. it's not loads of public events. Um, she is doing events, but some of them are closed. And um, it just doesn't have that frenetic energy of a real contest. It kind of feels like it's already over. 
Greg? Yeah, I agree with Patricia on that. I mean, this is my third New Hampshire primary. And what strikes me up until DeSantis is a surprise announcement yesterday is just how, how low key things are here. I mean, I've been to New Hampshire primaries where there's seven or eight events in a day. And of course, that's partly because there's a bigger field of candidates and there's a, there's a, there's a real uh, race on both sides of the ticket in other primaries. And whereas this one, there's not. Um, but today is that perfect example. I mean, Nikki Haley has a handful of stops. She'll be uh, here in Salem later on tonight and a few minor stops earlier in the day, but mostly retail stops. Trump has a few surrogates on the campaign trail, but as Patricia said, he's in court today, and his big event won't be until 9 p.m. tonight. There's no debates. Joe Biden isn't here campaigning because he's not even on the ballot. He, he's a write-in candidate. It's just a very weird, low-key type of uh, uh, type primary, but it doesn't mean the stakes aren't incredibly high. And back to that original question, what, what, the, what the challenge Nikki Haley faces going forward is that, of course— you know, a huge number of voters here say they're moderate, they're independent, and Democrats can also vote in the primary here. Um, the, the cutoff time was a few months ago, but they can still vote in this primary. And so this is a tailor-made uh, primary for Nikki Haley. And again, if she gets anything short of a close second-place finish or, of course, an upset victory, there's going to be real, real questions about where she can go going forward and how you can compete in, for Republican nomination uh, potentially without winning a single state, because there's not too many states in the map going forward that are very favorable to her either. What I do think is fascinating about Nikki Haley at this point, though, is that she is digging in even harder against Trump, unlike a number of the other Republicans who have pulled all of their fire, whatever they said about Trump in the past. You know, they're on they're on team Trump now. She is digging in so hard against Trump right now. She's saying that it was his fault. Republicans lost the House his fault that they didn't do better in Senate elections, um, that a number of the things that are going on in the country are because of Donald Trump. Um, not to mention, she's said multiple times he's not mentally fit for the job. And um, it doesn't feel like she's trying to find her path back to the vice presidency right now. Yeah. I could be wrong, but she's making some enemies along the way. It doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do for her long-term viability in this Republican Party, but it feels like she's staking out her position in the future Republican Party. And it's not going to be as a Trump apologist. We all, uh, we, you know, a lot of the candidates make statements that they later <laughs> change their minds about. Nikki Haley has said she does not want to accept uh, the role of vice president in a, a tr if Trump becomes uh, the nominee. I should also point out that Trump has kind of indicated he doesn't want Nikki yeah. Haley to be the Well, sure, running. yeah. Um, so, at, okay, so Greg pointed out that he the first event he covered was the um, – Member number of South Carolina Republican leaders who Trump brought to New Hampshire so they could stand on a stage with him and give him their endorsement. One of the South Carolina leaders, Greg, who endorsed Trump after dropping out of the race himself a while back, Senator Tim Scott, then Ron DeSantis, uh, decides to endorse him. And I can't help but think, Greg, about a comment that Trump supposedly made that the New York Times reported back when Tom Emmer, who was the only Republican leader in the U.S. House who did not vote to nullify the results of the 2020 victory for Joe Biden, finally came around and was the last House Republican leader to endorse Donald Trump. And Trump, according to a number of reports, was uh, said to have uh, said at that moment, um, they all end up bending 
the knee. And that seems to be happening right now. And even DeSantis brought that up uh, in a speech a couple of days ago where he says, hey, you either bend the knee or you're his enemy forever. And, you know, if, if Nikki Haley doesn't up battling out of the race, you know, expect to see her endorse Trump, right? I mean, we're seeing it in Georgia. We're starting to see in Georgia this sort of thaw towards Donald Trump, uh, where, you know, this morning I reported that a number of uh, uh, senior Republican state Senate officials and, and a new statewide officer, Tyler Harper, who's the agriculture commissioner, have all endorsed Donald Trump. But what we're also seeing is a number of those folks who are, you know, Governor Kemp, Chris Carr, who have been very cold and icy towards Trump for good reason, because they've gone after, Trump has gone after their jobs. Uh, they've t- ratcheted down their rhetoric, right? We haven't seen Governor Kemp uh, attack Donald Trump in months now. Chris Carr is defending him in court against uh, legal action to, to, to block him from Colorado's ballot. So we're starting to see even sort of mainstream Republican officials who have been on the wrong side of Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's anger now not cozy up to him, but at least uh, not continue their fight against him. Patricia, um, let's expand on that for just a minute. It now appears almost certain that by the time we get to March 12th, the date of Georgia's uh, pr- uh, presidential primary election, Donald Trump will have had this thing uh, wrapped up. D- do we imagine that means that we're going to see what Greg's talking about? One state leader, Republican state leader after another, uh, endorsing uh, a Trump uh, by the time that March 12th date rolls around? Well, it'll be interesting. We've seen a number of uh highly ranked Republicans say, I'm going to wait to see who the nominee is. And so it almost sounded like they were going to wait until after the Georgia election. Now, Donald Trump will be keeping tabs. He already is keeping tabs of who has endorsed him and when have they endorsed him? And does it seem like they're endorsing him early in a way that's helpful or late just because they think they should go ahead and get on the bandwagon? Um, The legislature will still be in session. They'll still have a lot on their plates, um, at least for people like uh, the governor and the speaker. Um, but we'll have to see what they do. It'll be an important strategic decision on their part, but there are still some holdouts and we'll be keeping an eye on them very closely. But the line that we hear from a lot are that, well, I will support the nominee, um, but they may wait until that person is the actual nominee. That could be, but by that, by March 12th, Trump will virtually be the unofficial nominee. That's why I think it's going to be fascinating to watch all that. Tia, we don't have to wait in Washington for Republicans uh, to jump on board. Uh, Members of the House, as we just said, they've all now said, regardless of how he does in New Hampshire tonight, regardless of how he did in Iowa, Trump's their man. Yeah, I mean, that was always the case. You know, you did have Rich McCormick, who Mm. endorsed DeSantis, campaigned in Iowa for DeSantis. And um, Greg and Patricia reported that he basically didn't necessarily endorse Haley or Trump, but we don't expect him to not support whoever is the eventual nominee as well. And um, it'll be interesting, though, like someone like McCormick, who didn't just stay out, but endorsed Ron DeSantis. He was one of only five members of Congress to go out on that limb. And again, unlike a Chris Carr or a Brian Kemp, you know, you can say at the end of the day, they're at state level. They can kind of do their own thing. 
being out of good graces with Donald Trump won't have a huge effect on like their day to day lives. But that's not the case if Rich McCormick is in Congress and, you know, someone like Donald Trump is in the White House. You can really make his life difficult. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects Rich McCormick, uh, his political career. He has indicated he's running for another term. Will someone challenge him in the primary who's more pro-Trump, for example? Those are the things we're just going to have to stand by and see. All right, let's do this. Why don't we get our first break of the show out of the way? Uh, Patricia mentioned the fact that there is a Democratic primary happening in New Hampshire tomorrow. Uh, It hasn't gotten a great deal of attention. Joe Biden is not as she's pointed out, on the ballot. We're going to talk a bit about that. Why isn't he on the ballot? What led to uh, that happening? What's the importance of the Democratic primary tomorrow, if anything at all? We'll talk about that and a lot more. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. We'll be right back. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein in New Hampshire and Tia Mitchell in Washington. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. I'm Bill Nygut along with Tia Mitchell, who is in Washington, and Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein are in New Hampshire. Patricia, I want to pick up on the fact that you're sitting in a Duncan parking lot, and you pointed out that's where people go in New Hampshire. I don't think people in Georgia, if they haven't spent time in New England, know just how important Duncan is (laughs) if you're in Massachusetts, New Hampshire, or the Northeast. (laughs) Yes, well, if you've ever seen um, Ben Affleck on Saturday Night Live, you should know how important Dunkin' Donuts are to the fabric and the infrastructure of New England, and there there are Dunkin' Donuts everywhere. Much to my pleasure. So, yeah, so um, there was a sign-waving brigade here at the Dunkin' Donuts on um, Hoxett Street in New Hampshire, I mean in uh, Manchester, of Democrats waving signs to tell morning computers, commuters, excuse me, write in Joe Biden's name on the Democratic ballot. Because the DNC moved South Carolina to become the first in the nation primary they considered that to be the first primary. Um, the DNC is not recognizing this as a primary because all of this was Joe Biden's idea. He also did not put his name on the ballot here in New Hampshire, but New Hampshire state law requires it to be the first primary ahead of all other states. So there was a collision between the DNC rules and the New Hampshire state law. So the primary is happening. Joe Biden is not on the ballot. So yeah. it creates very unusual situation where the president um, is not there for people to vote for, even on the same day that Donald Trump is expected to do extremely well 
in the GOP primary. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Uh, Tia, um, the Biden campaign says the reason they made the change took Iowa and New Hampshire off the plate as the first two states to vote in primaries was because they wanted more diverse, a more diverse state to go first, being South Carolina. But we should not forget, it is also true, that Joe Biden placed fifth in the New Hampshire primary in 2020. So he doesn't have any reason to have a particular fondness for New Hampshire. Right. So in New Hampshire, um, there are a lot of political insiders who believe that this was out of spite even more so than like the stated reasons the Democratic Party talked about picking states that look more like the Democratic electorate. New Hampshire is like 90% white and 2% black. And um, that is not what the Democratic Party looks like overall. The Democratic Party is about when um, I looked it up yesterday, the average Democratic kind of party racial breakdown is about 65 percent white and I think about 20 percent black. So um, that's nationally. So, again, there are you some of what the DNC and the Biden campaign have said to argue why New Hampshire shouldn't be the first primary state is valid. It's like these states, Iowa, New Hampshire, are first at this point based just off of tradition and history. There's no, you know, yes, it's in New Hampshire law, but there's no rhyme or reason to it other than we want to be first. Now, New Hampshire loves being first. They love, you know, they talk about the fact that they might not be the most racially diverse but they're diverse in thought they're the was it live free or die mm-hmm. state and right. and that even though they're not necessarily um, racially diverse that they have this dynamic educated electorate that is engaged on the issues um, so they want to keep that that first also let's not ignore the the economic repercussions of being these first states, the the attention they get in politics that, quite frankly, New Hampshire and Iowa don't otherwise get politically. Um, and so they don't want to lose that. But there is an argument that, like, can you learn, again, the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire aren't great at picking the eventual nominees, to me, is another indication why people are like, well, shouldn't we prioritize states that are more reflective of where generally uh, voters in the nation want to go. Yeah. And as part of that democratic push, of course, Georgia was going to be moved up the calendar um, to, to one of the first early voting states as one of the first larger states, right. Uh, with, with a, as Tia said, with a significant African-American population, of course, black voters are the backbone of the democratic party in states like Georgia. Um, and that decision was ultimately up to secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger and Republican officials who said no way, but that that argument was made to them that it would be a, such an economic boon to Georgia, you know, tens of millions of dollars, more than hundred million dollars in economic impact for having um, the, the, an early primary and not to mention, of course, the attention you get. But what strikes me about all this guys is that, you know, in Iowa, it seemed like Democrats kind of took it, you know, took to, to it. They might've fought back a little bit about not, not having the first in the nation caucus early. Um, but in New Hampshire, Democrats are furious. And I was at an event with Congressman Dean Phillips, 
who's running against Biden. And it, w- it was a small venue, so it was packed. You know, they do this on purpose. They have small venues, so it can look like it, they're packed. It was another seafood shack. Patricia and I have been to a lot of seafood restaurants, it looks like, over the last couple of days. But, um, but you know, in the, in the town hall portion of it, when he was taking questions, most of the questions were from voters who were upset about Biden, you know, turning their back. Where is, jo- where is the president? Where is Joe Biden? They wanted their chance to have a town hall with Joe Biden. And you turn on the TVs here, you see ads that compare Joe Biden to Bigfoot, right? Where is he? Where's he been? And there's billboards in Manchester kind of saying, have you seen this man? And it's Joe Biden. And so there he's, Dean Phillips has no chance of, of winning, but he's trying to tap into that frustration, at least to keep his campaign afloat for one more race. Patricia, we should also point out that because the DNC did not recognize Iowa as the first state in the nation to hold a primary, uh, no delegates will be assigned coming out of the New Hampshire Democratic primary. Uh, Joe Biden may win it on this write-in vote, but um, I'm not even, frankly, one of you may know this, I'm not quite sure how New Hampshire's Democratic delegates will end up being assigned, given they're not going to be assigned out of the primary. Do you know, Tia? You've got your hand up there. So they can always change that when we get to the DNC. So if Joe Biden wins... They can all of a sudden say, you know what? We had a change of heart. We want to mend mend what was broken and and make those New Hampshire voters feel good. We hate that you guys felt so bad about us not uh, making you guys the first primary. So all is forgiven. We accept your delegates now. Um, now, I don't think that will be uh, the case if Joe Biden doesn't win the state. But if he does in the spirit of like unity and all that stuff, when everybody gets to um, Chicago, I think they could still count the pa- delegates. Pa- Patricia, how fired up were the people at this, you know, write-in event for Joe Biden that you attended? You know, it was mostly energy about Donald Trump mm-hmm. saying this election is too important to let some party machinations get people's feelings hurt and lose sight of the larger goal that Donald Trump in their words, has to be stopped. So there was plenty of energy. There were lots of people honking the horns when uh, they were driving by. This was targeting commuters um, and morning commuters here in Manchester. So um, there was plenty of energy, but there's not a lot. There's no Democratic visibility here on the ground. Um, It just is a vacuum. It feels like nothing's happening. And that's compared to feeling like Donald Trump is making lots of headlines. And while he's having not a number, a huge number of events. He is here in the state and having large events when he's here. And there are other Republicans, of course, running around too. And um, I mean, this is a state with two Democratic U.S. senators. There's a very strong Democratic infrastructure here. I saw Senator Maggie Hassan this morning. She was one of the people out there waving signs, and she was talking really about. Donald Trump and saying, uh, once there are the party conventions, once this gets into November, this is going to be a one-on-one contest. And all of this will be essentially forgotten by voters, but not forgotten by New Hampshire Democrats who still are very angry. I mean, it's a very small population state. We're not talking about many delegates. It's not going to matter one way or another, um, even if there were a contested primary, which there, there won't be. But it is something that has really gotten New Hampshire Democrats here out of sorts. Here's a nice piece of history. The last sitting president to skip being an official candidate in the New Hampshire primary was President Johnson in 1968. Hmm. In that election, Gene McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy, Senator uh, uh, Eugene McCarthy, who was on the New Hampshire ballot, got 
42, I think, percent of the vote to Lyndon Johnson's write-in 48 percent of the vote. And it was such a humiliation for President Johnson and a recognition that his policies, particularly on the war in Vietnam, were so unpopular that within weeks he made the stunning announcement that he would not be seeking re-election. Greg, a really interesting parallel back more than 50 years ago. We're not going to see that happen tomorrow, but that's just an interesting little tidbit to throw in here. Yeah, Biden's camp's really uh, confident that they'll reach the 50% plus threshold, but you're right. We won't see that probably, but it goes to show you how New Hampshire is always full of surprises. And, and Patricia and I learned that firsthand when we were hanging out at the Brown's Lobster Pound in Seabrook and we and when the news broke that Ron DeSantis was getting out of the race. All right. Before we move on, I just – because both of you, Patricia and Greg, have kind of made this uh, comment in, a, in various ways. We're used to all the excitement around New Hampshire, all of the events. It's so hard usually to keep track of where you're going to go on a given day, you know. Um, that's not happening this year. So just give us, if you would, uh, Patricia, please go first, your your sense of how, what is the atmosphere like right now? What are the, how are the people feeling about turning out at the polls? What What's it like in New Hampshire uh, today, the day before the primary? So it feels like um, this is the Never Trumpers last stand. This is their last chance to stop President Trump um, from getting the nomination and then being in a one-on-one contest with Joe Biden. But it feels like that's even that is an uphill battle. Uh, it does. It feels like Trump has an immense amount of momentum, um, largely because he did not um, concede the last election. A number of people, Trump supporters here, treat him like he's the president. It feels like he's the incumbent. It feels like Nikki Haley is running a challenger campaign to a sitting president in a lot of ways. And so it feels um, a bit like uh, uh, we know who's going to win. We don't, of course. We'll find out if Nikki Haley can pull out a surprise. It would be hugely important for her. But right now it feels like um, it really feels like there's not a Democratic primary and it feels like the Republican primary is for an incumbent. And so that has drained away um, a lot of the typical um, uh, suspense and excitement and intensity that you usually feel before a typical election day. I agree completely. I mean, you know, it's kind of like a soft boil, right? There, There's immense stakes up for grabs tonight. Like tonight's going to be, a, I'm sorry, tomorrow night. I keep on saying tonight. My, I'm fast forwarding in my own mind. But t- Tuesday's primary is immense stakes. It is the last stand for the Never Trumpers. And if Nikki Haley has a very disappointing finish, it is hard to see her, even in her home state. It's hard to see her moving forward. Who knows what she'll do? She said she will move forward, but, but it's going to be really tough for her. Um, so there's high, high stakes. But it seems like that, and the, and the TV is filled with ads, radio is filled with ads. Like it's not like you can, you know, you can't move a foot without hearing about the race. But at the same time, it's not full of those events. There's not huge downtown spectacles. There's not, you know, Donald Trump is holding big rallies. Nikki Haley's uh, main event last night in Exeter, New Hampshire, probably had a couple hundred people, but it wasn't thousands upon thousands. Um, and so it's not. It's not the same energy or enthusiasm that I've seen in the last couple New Hampshire primaries I've covered, despite the stakes being very high. All right. Um, well, we're going to watch to see what happens in New Hampshire. Obviously, Greg and Patricia, you'll be on the ground 
tonight. And Greg, you're on your way tonight to Laconia, which is as far north as you say you've ever been in New Hampshire. It's a great little town. You'll like it up there. I can't wait. I can't wait. (laughs) All right. We got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, there's a new development in the uh, Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis's uh, a uh, supposed relationship with Nathan Nathan Wade. We'll talk about that and more. You're listening to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut, along with Tia Mitchell in Washington and Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein joining us from New Hampshire. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. Greg Bluestein and Patricia Murphy are joining us from New Hampshire. Tia Mitchell's with us in Washington. Tia, before we change the subject to talking a bit about the Fonnie Willis story, let's say one more thing about this presidential race. We know that... um, President Biden's uh, approval ratings in Georgia, which, of course, is now a battleground state, are really very low. Um, Trump is, uh, according to the poll that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution released last week, eight points ahead of him at this moment in time. And we we should point out that today uh, President Biden is going to do an event on an issue that the Democrats now believe they can really make headway on in states, in battleground states. He is uh, going to, he's convening a meeting of what is known as the Interagency Task Force on Reproductive Health Care Access. I know this because I read it in the Politically Georgia Morning Newsletter where I get my jolt of morning news. And, Tia, uh, that same story points out that the Biden campaign is about to release an ad on women's right to choose in a number of battleground states, among other places it'll air, is on tonight's edition. I think it's a brand new one. Yes, new, season premiere. The new Bachelor <laughs> season premiere. Tia, Democrats are beginning to recognize that if a threat to democracy isn't going to drive people to the polls, maybe the issue of abortion will. Yeah, and I think it's part of a multi-pronged ap- approach. I don't think any kind of Biden campaign staffer or top Democrat will tell you that abortion alone can win the general election, that 
threats to democracy alone will win the general election. They know they're going to need more than anything, a strong economy and people willing to give President Biden credit for the strong economy to win the general election. But they do believe these other issues help drive people. They help drive enthusiasm. They help drive kind of energy and motivation. And so this week, today, quite um, is actually the 51st anniversary mm-hmm. of the Supreme Court's initial Roe v. Wade um, decision. Now, we know in June 2022, the new conservative majority, as um, you know, as facilitated by then President Trump, overturned Roe v. Wade. And so Democrats plan to tie it all back to Trump. They know that Trump is the likely nominee. And so today, when Biden's task force convenes tomorrow, there's going to be the first really, truly big joint Biden-Harris rally of 2024. That'll be outside of D.C. and Northern Virginia. Northern Virginia recently flipped one of its uh, state uh, legislative bodies to Democratic control. They've got um, a Democratic majorities in the House and Senate now. They hope to get a Democrat in the governor's office in Virginia. So it's going to be a setting where they are going to talk about abortion as well. Patricia, just a brief comment from you on um, this is an issue for the Democrats in 2024. Yeah, so I think it has a really strong crossover potential for Democrats, particularly among Republican women. Um, Donald Trump seems to have a hard time talking about this issue, Mm. but he also made a commitment that he absolutely lived up to to appoint um, justices who would be willing to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is exactly what happened. So it comes down to the fact that the presidential contest will be about the future of the Supreme Court as much as about anything else. And Donald Trump's record um, and uh, the deliberate, the uh, immediate effects it had on abortion access and significant effects it had on abortion access, um, I think will be of importance to a number of women. Will it be of the most importance? That has been the Democrats um, challenge Uh, when it is the only issue on the ballot. uh, It's not even close. It has been a very, very powerful issue, even in Republican states um, for uh, for people looking to have more access to abortion. But when it's combined with the personalities of of the two men running, when it's combined with a lot of other issues that are happening simultaneously, it's going to be up to the Democrats to run a a different kind of campaign. They have not managed to make Mm -hmm. This an effective statewide um, issue among a group of issues, nor a national issue among a group of issues. So they're going to have to um, message it a little bit differently. And it looks like they're already starting to try to do that. And Bill, Republicans have been uh, wary of talking about this, just like Patricia just said, for a good reason. If you look at the ballot box, if you look at what what even happened last year, Democrats have been on a winning streak when it comes to abortion rights issues. In in, in Kentucky, Democratic Governor Annie Bashir won in a normally Republican state by emphasizing his support for abortion rights. In Ohio, a very uh, increasingly Republican state, voters overwhelmingly passed a constitutional amendment in November that keeps abortions legal until at least about 23 weeks of pregnancy. And in Virginia, Democrats flipped the House of Delegates and kept mm-hmm. control of the state Senate and blocked Governor Glenn Youngkin's hopes of passing a new abortion ban. So Democrats have been on this hot streak on abortion rights, and they'll continue to push that message. Let me take this just one step further, if I may. 
uh, Patricia, um, Donald Trump, as you pointed out, appointed the justices who were able to overturn Roe v. Wade. And yet, while Ron DeSantis was in the race, um, Ron DeSantis, who passed the same kind of law that we have in Georgia, a six-weeks ban on abortion, um, DeSantis was at, to the right to some extent, Trump would argue, uh, uh, of, of Trump on abortion. So Trump would say De- DeSantis has gone too far, um, and that was about the way he framed abortion. DeSantis is gone. Suddenly Trump is exposed in terms of his role in overturning Roe in a very different way than hiding behind, I'm not as extreme as Ron DeSantis. Well, he'll always be the the president who appointed the three uh, justices who were instrumental in overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think what he says about the issue um, on the margins is not going to be nearly as important as his record. And that will be very a powerful motivating factor for uh, conservatives, but equally powerful for independent Republican women. And I think that that um, Kentucky race is a great mm-hmm. example of a Democratic um, a Democratic candidate in a popular governor who ran a really hard-hitting um, ad. It wasn't about having um, no limits to abortion, but pointing out that the inc- extremely restrictive limits that Republicans have pushed for um, have been really damaging to women and girls, not just women, but girls. And so that's the kind of messaging that uh, could have lost a race for a Democrat in the past. But with the reality of Roe Wade being overturned, it becomes a live issue for every woman um, voting in 2024. All right. It's going to be an ins- issue that we will obviously be following for months. Uh, I promised we'd get to talking about the latest developments in the Fonnie Willis-Nathan Wade controversy. Um, Tia, our colleague Bill Rankin uh, published a piece, it's been a couple of days now ago, uh, and this relates not to the um, Ashley Merchant, who is the defense attorney uh, for one of the Trump conspiracy defendants who filed that motion in court, first exposing what she alleges is this um, inappropriate relationship between Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis. This goes to the Nathan Wade divorce case, his um, his estranged wife um, and the uh, battle they're having in their divorce. Here's just a, a, a bit from what Rankin says. He says it better than I can. Bank records show that Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade purchased airline tickets in his and Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis's name for trips to San Francisco and Miami, according to a court motion filed on Friday. And again, that was filed on behalf of Nathan Wade's, Wade's estranged wife. Why is it important? because the accusations made by Ashley Merchant in the the Trump prosecution are that she appointed Nathan Wade, paid him a lot of money, and then was getting trips paid for by Nathan Wade. We still have not heard Fonnie Willis respond specifically to any of this. Yeah, and I also want to give a shout out. Charles Minshew, who's our digital mm-hmm. storytelling editor, co-wrote that story with okay. Bill Rankin. So I also want to give Charles a shout out. But yeah, so the reason why that story, which got national media attention, this is a problem for Fonnie Willis. I think we just need to say that. It is becoming a problem for Fonnie Willis because this lends credibility to what 
Nathan Wade's estranged wife put in her divorce proceeding, which is that Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis have been taking these trips to vacation destinations. Now, you can say there could be, you know, vacation destinations are often uh destinations for work trips and and conferences and the like. But Nathan Wade and Fonnie Willis haven't said where they were going or why Nathan Wade was paying for tickets in Fonnie Willis's name and whether she ever paid him back and what they did when they got there. So in the absence of that, we have all this speculation. It's continuing to not look good for Fonnie Willis. It'll be interesting in today's court proceeding, which again is related Mm -hmm. to the divorce, whether the judge will agree that there is no need for Fonnie Willis to testify She, I think, did make a point. She was like, if this is a no-fault divorce and you two are supposed to be working it out amongst yourselves, what do you need to talk to me for other than you just trying to get in my business and stir up drama? I think Fonnie Willis makes a good point, but the question is, will the judge say no? If there is indication of a private relationship, maybe he does think that there's a way that it impacts the divorce itself and if the judge believes that Fonnie Willis has something to say about the divorce yes she could be asked questions that give people related to the RICO charges more information yeah Patricia Fonnie Willis has been subpoenaed by uh, Nathan Wade's wife's uh, uh, attorneys to give a deposition. That's what's at stake in this hearing that's going to take place in Cobb County today. Does she have to honor that subpoena and be deposed? Right. And there's a great irony in that a number of the people whom she subpoenaed in the Trump probe tried to have their subpoenas quashed. And um, she's trying to use that tactic um, to her benefit here as well. Um, Another piece of information we found out in these filings is that uh, Wade also purchased a ticket for his mother. Mm -hmm. And so it is a reminder that there could still be surprises and explanations behind the next corner. We don't really know um, if this relationship is as it's been portrayed. And they're also traveling with his mother. This is it's hard to wrap your head around, but we just don't know. And I think that's why it will be important at some point to get uh, to get an explanation from Fonnie Willis. I know there are legalities. There is this live divorce case proceeding, which I'm sure has very high stakes in its own way. But it is creating a vacuum of information that is very damaging just to Willis's reputation. Um, will it damage the underlying case? There are plenty of legal experts who say it shouldn't. But will it damage the the entire operation in the court of public opinion? That has already happened. So, Greg, we already. okay. so this divorce proceeding will be uh, 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 taken up in Cobb County Court today. Uh, uh, Meanwhile, uh, Ashley Merchant's motion uh, to have the charges against her client uh, dismissed um, and to and and to accuse Fonnie Willis of uh, getting favors, getting actually. I suppose you could call them almost kickbacks for paying Nathan Wade what she does and then going on trips with him. That's going to be litigated uh, in the criminal courts where the conspiracy trial unfolds. So we want to keep those two separate to help our listeners understand there are a couple of tracks here. We want to keep them separate, but it should be noted that Ashley Merchant will also be testifying. She's expected to testify in the divorce hearing today as well. So they're separate, 
but they are interrelated because she'll be arguing in favor of making the records public at that divorce hearing because she's indicated that they contain evidence about the alleged personal relationship that she will be bringing up in the Fulton County case. So very confusing, but they are interrelated in that aspect. And over the weekend, we have seen even more pressure on Nathan Wade. We haven't heard from him at all, but we had seen Norm Eisen, who Mm -hmm. was Obama's ethics expert, come out and he's been one of Fonnie Willis's most ardent defenders. He's written a number of op-eds in the AJC and elsewhere uh, about her case long before this, saying that uh, he's one of those legal experts who are saying that there's nothing in this motion that should undermine, that should threaten Fonnie Willis's case against uh, against Donald Trump and his allies. At the same time, he said over the weekend that Nathan Wade should step down. He should do the right thing in his words and step down um, to, to remove the sort of cloud of scrutiny around uh, her handling of this investigation. Tia, there's a reckoning here that will happen, whether it's Nathan Wade stepping down, whether it's Fonnie Willis being in a position where she is no longer strong enough, given public opinion, to prosecute this case herself. That would be the worst outcome if you're the Fulton County DA. But but if none of that happens, the other thing I wonder about is not only will Donald Trump and his allies be pushing this over and over again as an example of a political uh, uh, witch hunt, um, but it also there's going to be a jury pool. There's going to be a jury eventually seated in this case, presumably. And so the public is watching all of this, and it could have an impact on how they view this case going in to the courtroom. Yeah, and I think that the worst outcome could be if they decide that the Fulton County District's attorney office altogether is disqualified, that Fonnie Willis at the head has kind of tainted the whole office. Again, that's pretty extreme, but we just don't know what we don't know right now. All right. This is uh, turning into just one of the most troubling, I think, for many, many people, uh, stories in this entire conspiracy case. And obviously what happens in Cobb County today will be something we'll watch very closely. Uh, Before we uh, finish up, Uh, today, since uh, we do have Patricia and Greg in New Hampshire. Patricia, what are your plans for today? What can we expect in terms of your coverage and what we'll talk about tomorrow? Or is it still kind of up in the air since there don't seem to be a lot of events going on right now? I know I'm catching up with some Georgians who've come up to campaign for Nikki Haley. I'll be with Nikki Haley later in the afternoon and um, I'll keep y'all posted. Greg? Real quick. Nikki Haley's coming to my hotel, and then I'll be going to Donald Trump's event, Laconia. Always in the right place, the AJC politics <laughs> team. That's it. We're completely out of time for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. And share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. 
So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.